Hello, it's Sevens Mirages, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest on this podcast is director Omer Ben Sayadia. Omer went to CCM and has gone on to an international career, but she was back in the summer of 2019 to direct a brand new production of Strauss's comedy, Ariadne auf Naxos. I'll be talking with Omer about how she got her start in opera, how she played hooky from the Israeli army to be in rehearsals, and equally important, how she engages with this wonderful art form. Let's start, Omer, by me asking a, what may seem an obvious question, but also or may not. Um, do you recall when you first thought about the idea of a director and what it might have meant to you the first time you either heard it or someone talked to you about it? Director, what did, what did that mean to you as a kid? As a kid, I would um, go to preschool, and then when preschool was over, my dad would pick me up and take me to rehearsal. Rehearsal? He was a theater director, still is. And being a director seemed like what every dad did. So we would go, and I would sit in on rehearsal, and I would have a job. I would either be covering one of the roles, or I would read along with the lines and give line readings to the singers, to the actors, if they missed their line and just hang out. It was the most affordable daycare you could ever imagine. So you were, as they used to say, born in a trunk. Born in a trunk, (laughs) traveling circus. And when I found out that other kids didn't get to go to rehearsal, I was so disappointed for them because it seemed like the greatest thing that you could do. You grew up in Israel. I grew up in Israel. I grew up in Tel Aviv. What's the Israel of your childhood in your memory, the Tel Aviv of your childhood? Some things that stick out to this day, sights and smells and sounds that suffused your childhood. And I imagine eventually form part of your persona as a director and the way you look at the world. Growing up in a place like um, Israel is always complicated. It is one of the most richly, historically, culturally beautiful places to be and one of the most complicated political places to live. And um, growing up when I did, it was on the one hand a time of great prosperity in the country and a time of great turbulence. So I, um, I was... This is the late 90s, early 2000s, basically. This is, yeah, starting with um, the first Gulf War mm. and um, and then the first Intifada and the second Intifada. And we sort of had, and then the, the departure out of the Gaza Strip. And, and, you know, there's always these times of great unrest and conflict and outright war. And then there are times of great um, thriving and cultural awakening. But I think the theater community that I grew up in, as well as the social community that I grew up in, were filled with artists who were constantly debating about their involvement in the social, political situation. Artists all over the world, in theory, are social activists in some way, whether they are 
artists who sculpt or paint or build or perform or compose or write. But it would seem to me in the, in the cauldron that is the Middle East in general, but in Israel, did it seem to you now with your perspective of living outside of Israel a lot of the time, simply more important, more, more part of everybody's daily life, art and its value in a community? Yeah, I mean, I think when I hear artists talk about them not wanting to be political or not wanting to get involved in politics, I think that's a, a comment that comes from great privilege. And um, when you grow up in a place like that, it's in the street. It's in your life. You can't deny it. You can't avoid it, nor should you. Um, art is not meant to be separated from the day-to-day. And it, even if it is meant to be entertainment or an escapist venture from the day-to-day, it still is that. It is still in relation to what is happening around us. So we're constantly fed by the, the spirit around us, the air around us. And not only is it our responsibility, but it's inevitable. We have to be responding to what's happening around us in whatever way that means to you as an artist. You know, if it means being the voice for people who do not have, who are voiceless, who do not have the, the, the platform that we have, if it means reflecting on the general consensus, if it means being the consensus and showing the, the, the voice of the majority in uh, times where that's not the, the rule of law, um, it's always, always going to be around you. And, um, and I love that aspect. I think that's what Tel Aviv taught me most of all, is that we are social political beings and our art is a form of expression of that. Whether it is light comedy or Italian opera, it still is part of that. Thus it ever was. You, one reads about Beethoven during the siege of Vienna and how he was by Napoleon and how his, his Opus 81A piano sonata is actually a, a letter to one of his dear pupils who happened to be a member of the royal family about his uh, departure and the angst of being away and then the joy of his return. And his famous story of, you know, ripping up the or scratching out the dedication to Napoleon in the beginning of the Third Symphony. So art is always deeply intertwined with politics, no matter what the era or the geographic location. But as a kid, you grow up in the theater. So is your is your apprenticeship uh, on the job training in the old fashioned way? Did you actually go to school for the theatrical arts at all? So I started off by doing what was necessary. You know, um, my dad needed a lighting designer, so I learned how to hang lights. Um, he needed someone to work the sound system, so I learned how to do that. Um, and then eventually I um, was sort of contemplating whether theater was a real profession for me. And I started... You could make a living at that? Exactly. Well, a living. <laughs> that's what you call a living. So... But I was really interested um, in journalism in uh, high school and was sort of playing around with that. And it was actually um, the Army that did it um, because my Army service 
I was supposed to go into the journalism core, and it didn't work out. I got kicked out of the course in midway through training. Were and you failing, or were you a misfit? Were you surplus to requirements? I, turns out, cared more about um, opinion writing and storytelling than I was about facts and reporting. If you can you're born, imagine You're a born that. director. So at what age do you have to enter military service? Um, 18. Mm -hmm. 18 is sort of the standard, and it is two-year mandatory service for girls and uh, three for boys. And, um, and I enlisted quite reluctantly, um, only because the, the face and the nature of the Army had changed from when my grandparents served to when my parents served to when I was serving. And um, and so when the when the when the journalism corps didn't work out, I was sort of sent into general service, and I ended up being placed in a information office, intelligence office, and um, and I had a desk job, nine to five desk job. But and you were in uniform. I was in uniform. I was in a very. I was oddly shaped and, and uh, ill-fitted into that uniform, but I was in uniform and um, had to pull my hair up because you couldn't have your curls hanging down. And, um, and I had a job. I had a job for the first time that wasn't a waitressing job or wasn't a cafe job. It was a nine-to-five, sit behind a desk, work in front of a computer, and I hated it. So much so that you would play hooky and go and sit in on theater rehearsals. Would you tell that story? Well, you know... You're out of service now. They can't uh, come They can't you. do anything now, I hope. <laughs> I hope. Um, you know, I really... Um, I was really depressed during the time that I was there. And I had already started working at the opera before that. And, and this intelligence office that I was stationed at was across the street from the opera. No. And that's serendipity. That's yeah. If you believe in fate or a higher being, that will tell you something. And um, I really, the only place I hate going into the office. I hate it going into uniform. I hated all of it. And um, I would escape to the opera. So I would go on your um, lunch hour. On my lunch hour, that would sometimes be extended. Sometimes I would feel not so great during uh, lunch and then would have to go to the infirmary, but instead would go watch rehearsals. I mean, sometimes the orchestra rehearsal didn't line up with my nine to five military service. I once wished upon myself um, pneumonia. That's how, because I was so dis disappointed that I was gonna miss an opening weekend and I was supposed to go out of town for some stupid security service and I willed myself into pneumonia for a, a weekend and um, and I got to go to opening night and then to the hospital the next the next day um, but that's really when I knew I said I cannot have I really cannot have an office job it's not what I'm meant to do and though you begin in theater music comes into it fairly early on and it sounds like the pull of opera while it may not outweigh the theater started to become important. When did opera first become important to you? What are some of your earliest memories? So opera was the thing that my grandmother would play in the background at home. She grew up uh, in Vienna, 
And her mother would go to the Staatsoper and would pay. They had very little money. She would pay, you know, nickel tickets and would stand in the back, you know, standing room tickets to see whatever show, you know, it would be like going to the movies. She would go to an opera once or twice a year and uh, once or twice a week and would go home and hum whatever it is that she heard the night before. So my grandmother, even though she could sing along to any you know, famous operatic aria. She wouldn't be able to tell you what they were singing about or what language it was or who wrote it, but she could sing it as though it was like folk song. Um, and so when I was growing up, it was always in the background, but never as anything that I thought anything about. And then when I was 15 and acting in sort of like a community program, the opera um, came and said, we'd like for you kids to be in an opera they were doing an outreach program and basically came to this big community center and said, we're, everyone's going to be in the opera, the senior citizens, the kids, the whatever, and the dancers. There were all kinds of um, programs that were involved in it. And they said, we're doing Barbara of Seville. We're doing an hour version of it. It's going to be all in Hebrew and you're going to be in it. And we're gonna, you're gonna sing, you're gonna act, you're gonna do whatever it is. And we all said, sure, we had no real choice about it. And, uh, and that's when I really fell in love with it. And I would stay, I would stay after rehearsal, I would stay, I would come to the wings whenever I wasn't called to stage to listen to this magnificent thing that was happening. Um, and in your native language, and in Hebrew originally. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for me to hear Barbara in Italian now. <laughs> I imagine Largo al Factorum sounds very interesting in Hebrew. <laughs> just a little, just a little. It's fine, it's fine. If you like that kind of thing, it's okay. But you have this early exposure to opera, and you are advancing your education, getting more and more connected to it. At some point, do you skew your education towards opera as well? Well, I studied, I first, um, there is no official opera program in Israel for directors. Um, there's very little opera directing programs in the world at all. So I did my undergrad in theater directing, uh, theater directing and theater education, and studied with all of the great Israeli directors who came from that social political theater mm -hmm activist theater, um, and that's what I did while working um, while working at the opera as an assistant director and sort of keeping that momentum going. Um, because I knew that all of, I needed a proper theater education to sort of get to know the craft, get to know the history, get to know the possibilities. And I needed to supplement that with the opera education that I was getting from, by working at the opera. Mm. Um, and all that changed when I had been working at the Israeli Opera for about 10 years, um, when I was introduced, I sort of said, I feel like I have done everything that I can do here at this moment, and I need to start doing it for real. Mm -hmm. And I started looking into um, assistantships in the US and that's when I was introduced to Robin Guarino, who um, introduced me to the opera directing program at CCM. And that's how you wound up in Cincinnati eventually. 
So you're firmly committed to opera by this point. Uh, let's say you're now teaching a, a opera directing 101 course. What are three or four things that are some of the first things you learned and stick with you today as some of the basic principles of how you approach your art? You know, I always say opera directing is not really something you can teach or learn, um, but it's something you have to practice at. So the first thing I would say is, of course, sort of like the rudimentary, as many language classes as you can take, as many music theory classes and as many sort of music history classes as you can take would, would benefit you in the long run for years and years. Um, the other thing that I would say is um, as, men, as much time and as many classes that you can take with opera singers um, because directing singers is a very different thing than directing actors, than working with dancers. Um, fundamentally, we're all the same. We all have similar needs and similar wants, but um, singers are a different beast. They require different things. They think differently. They work differently. The athleticism of what they do is so specific that you really have to get to know them and spend time with them and figure out what it is that they're actually doing. Um, so I took a lot of classes that had sort of nothing to do with opera directing, allegedly, but have all come into, to come into you know, um, into practice, like acting classes, of course, and dance classes, a lot of movement classes, a lot of voice lessons that I've taken over the years that were never meant for me to sing, but were meant for me to say, what the hell are you guys doing over there? What are you all doing when you make that sound? What are you thinking about? What has to be engaged for it? Um, so all of those things were very important. The other thing that I think is highly important is art history. Seeing how uh, visual art has communicated with music and music communicated with visual arts over the years, um, you'll learn so much about humanity looking at visual arts. You'll learn about how people, what posture people had, what the ideals that they carried, what values they had just by really observing visual arts. You have been engaged to create a new production of The Marriage of Figaro, hypothetically. And you have found your designer, and I want to talk about that a little bit about how, what is your aesthetic and what kind of people you look to work for. But here you are for the first time with the score of The Marriage of Figaro. And when you open that score, um, if you've ever been listener to a an opera rehearsal, you will. If you look at the director's score, it looks like a minefield. There are post-its everywhere. Quite often, a score will have opposite every page of of music, another page in which the director has drawn diagrams as to you know like stick figures going <laughs> in all sorts of different places. But I guess I'm, uh, it's a long-winded way of asking what's. What are some of the beginning elements of your process as you begin to engage with the work that you're going to direct? 
Well, funny enough, I think I don't start um, with the score right away. I f always feel like I need to take a couple steps back to familiarize myself with how did we even get to the score? So uh, I'll read the libretto a lot of times, disconnected from the music. If there's an original text, like an original... Like the Beaumarchais like play the Beaumarchais, for the Major Figaro. Like a novel, I'll always read that. Mm -hmm. I'll read about the person who created it. I'll read, or the people who created it, and about the time that they were writing in. Um, so a lot of pre-work goes into it. And I will, as I'm doing all these things, I'll listen to the music in a sort of novice way. I'll just have it playing in the background so that I can start to have an emotional reaction to it that while I'm reading about all these different things. And only then do I sit down and open the score and start sort of the war planning that you're describing. Because it does look like the diagrams you've seen sometimes when you've seen them of military campaigns, of mm -hmm. you know, moving this block of soldiers to that hill and moving that machine gun battery over here and so on and so forth. So there is a certain amount of, of spatial manipulation that you must go through as part of your planning process. And I try, the thing is that is the funnest thing to do and you have to almost um, abstain from it as long as you can because that is sort of the easy part. But you first have to figure out what world are you living in? Because if you're going right or going left or jumping on top of the table or, you know, entering from upstage, you know, whatever that is, that's kind of the easy part. But figuring out what world we live in and what, our, what game we're playing, basically, is the harder aspect to it. So I almost have to stop myself, which is maybe that's why I have to wait until I open the score because that part feels like the fun part. That's the play aspect of it. You go this way, I'll go that way, then we'll plan this, then we'll do that. Um, but first I have to figure out where it is that we are living. Um, and when you say by living, do you mean the emotional moment of that part of the drama, the geographical location, expand on that, expand on that a little bit. I think it is to first figure out, you know, if we are setting it in a specific time period, if where are we physically on stage, what is the, to me it also comes from, what is the symbolic nature of the piece, what is the underlying current of the piece that we have on stage because it's never about oh okay it's going to be a house and there are going to be 10 doors and you know we're going to be outdoors in a garden or but what is the true element of the piece that I want to explore what is the question sort of like as a scientist might ask what is the question I want to ask and what is the the theory that I want to explore and so if I'm exploring the theme of uh, a fundamental fracture in society, um, then that what does that mean then about the surroundings that we're going to play in? If I am um, playing about a, the, the feeling of being 
uh, humanity feeling small in the greater scheme of life and world uh, events. If I am exploring the theme of loneliness and and being uh, being alone in the universe, so that is also that world. And then from that, what does that mean physically? What does that mean emotionally? What does that mean for the characters then? And what are we all, what are all the characters asking? Or what am I asking as a director? Um, I think especially when you go to pieces like Figaro or pieces that are sort of part of the bigger canon of work because they've done so many, they've been done so many times that you think, okay, so what's going to be interesting for me to explore and go from there? You are already in a situation in your still relatively young career where you've worked with singers before that you then work with again. You know some of the people with whom you work. And let's say you're doing this production, hypothetical production of Figaro, and uh, all of a sudden you realize, oh, the woman who's going to sing the role of the Countess is someone I don't know at all. Uh, you can nowadays watch a little bit perhaps on YouTube. You can talk to colleagues who've worked with this soprano. But what's the first day of staging in the room like with you and with her? What are you trying to find out about her? And I guess in turn, what is she trying to find out about you? You can't answer the second half of that question, mm -hmm. but you can certainly answer the first half. Well, I think first couple of days are really interesting because they're all about trust. Building trust. Building trust. Right. Can they trust me? Can I trust them? And we sort of figure out the rules of the room. How is this going to go? And part of the interesting aspect of all this planning that we're talking about that can take a year, can take two years, can take longer, Sometimes you only have a couple months if you're asked to do something last minute. Um, it always has a layer of doubt or a layer of a question mark because you don't know what's going to happen in the room. All this planning, and when I do all those sketches that you're talking about, I'm playing all the parts. I've played every part. I've walked every role. I've said it this way. I've said it that way. I've walked around my apartment doing every single part. You never know what's going to happen when you get into the room. And I always leave a level of room for this new energy that's going to come in. Because you, for me at least, you can't plan it without the people involved. Meaning if at the end of the day we did exactly what's on the page, then I failed in some way. And most times you're going to get pretty close to what was in the plan if you've planned it well. But if you haven't taken into consideration the people who are actually in the room. Um, then you're making a marionette theater. You're not making live drama. Exactly. And I always think at the end of the day, they have to sing it. They have to be it. They have to act it. They have to make it work. Um, it's easy for me to say, oh, well, when I did it at home, this is how I did it. But I wasn't singing while I was doing it and looking at the conductor and being in the costume and climbing the staircase and looking at my partner and doing all these things. So 
the first couple of days are always about sort of figuring out what is the rhythm of the room, what's the atmosphere in the room, and what the trust level is going to be. Do you try to cultivate a certain dynamic, um, whether it's comedy or tragedy or new work or old work? Is there an Omar Ben Sayadia working style? I no guess you'd have to is. ask my singers. No. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it is. Um, you ask a lot of questions in rehearsal, which I find fascinating. I ask a lot of questions. Um, I think that I like, first of all, for the room to be pleasant. When you walk into the room, that it is a pleasant place to be, that it is a human place to be. Hello, how are you? How is your day? Now let's get to work. And I like asking questions. I also like not giving all the answers, which is a tough thing for singers sometimes because, you know, people Just tell me where to go, right? Tell me where to do go. Do I sit in the chair on bar 35 or do I sit in the chair on bar 37? It is amazing. People say, oh, do singers give you pushback or do singers? And I say, no. Singers love to be directed. It takes so much responsibility off of them. You know what drives them crazy? Is when you go, this is what the theory is, this is what the character is, this is what it is. I don't know yet. Well, let's find out. And I will say, it's a little bit of a game, right? Because I have in my score written down exactly when I'd like for the singer to sit down. But... Um, it doesn't really matter most of the time. So why don't you sit down when you feel comfortable sitting down? Nine times out of 10, they'll sit down where I have it in my score to sit down as well. Because when you're working on a well-written score, it's in there. There's a time that makes sense. But I think if a singer feels empowered to make their own decisions in real time, they'll, then they'll have ownership for it. They'll say, I made this decision and I felt comfortable doing it here. Now, if they'll say, do you actually mind if I maybe sit down four bars later? Most of the time, I don't mind. It's not really about sitting down. If the emotional beat has happened, then all of that doesn't matter. And, and sometimes I'll say, all right, show me what that looks like. Let me be convinced that that's the right time to do it. Let me be convinced that that's the right way to do it. And I love it when I look on stage and I go, I can't remember whose idea this was. That's a good process to me. And you know, part of it, of course, is a negotiation between what is planned, what is offered in the room, what is um, surprising. Um, but I feel like that is a way for us all to feel like we are creating something in real time. When we're having this conversation, you're in Cincinnati in the summer of 2019 directing a new production of Strauss's comedy and tragedy, all rolled into one, Ariadne of Naxos. And you chose to set it in 1958 or so. Um, and you came up with a very specific um, overall idea of, of engaging with the piece itself. I'd love for you to share what your thought process was in terms of getting to know the score that brought you to this overall aesthetic 
concept of the two worlds colliding or coexisting or collaborating? Um, well, this is your fault, really. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> We're well, indicted co-conspirators. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, yours is the time frame and the aesthetic of of how the worlds interact. Mm-hmm. Mine's the physical overlay and the location. But I mean, this is what happens, and and uh, it is worth pausing on for a moment just to say, you know, in a relationship um, between. Um, an artistic director and a director, there's always a really interesting dialogue that happens or doesn't happen. And we've known each other for many years now, and and I credit Cincinnati Opera for sort of seeing me through my development as a, as a young director. So I assisted here and then did smaller shows here and did concerts and all this and that. Uh, um, and so our dialogue has started a long time ago. True. And so when you brought the the premise of setting it in Cincinnati and um, and localizing this production into the to the home of Powell Crossley Jr. and making it that, I think that already set in motion a thought process that we could have a dialogue as the process was happening, mm-hmm. which is, I will say, um, in the company of our listeners who are not here, um, is a rare instance that that we can have this dialogue throughout uh, many, many years, but specifically about this production. Now, to get to your question, you know, I with this piece, it is the first time in my artistic career yet that I had an aha moment. Um, I was in Aspen um, teaching and directing and basically stranded in the woods uh, in the most beautiful place, um, and I was sort of hitting myself uh, over the head with the score um, and thinking, how do I make this work? And had an aha moment about what the specific timeline will mean um, and what the best time to set this in will be. And again, it started from the outside in, you know, I started with reading the libretto, reading the text, reading about the correspondence between Strauss and Hofmannsthal and how unbelievable, unbelievably turbulent that was and hearing their thoughts about the piece. And I knew that the role of the composer was the one that was the most interesting for me. Because here we have this young man, this young artist, who is fighting to have his work mean something in a world that could care less. And is just thinking about art as this entertainment that has to be short and snappy and, you know, get get it over with before the fireworks start and all this and that. And because I do a lot of new opera, I relate to that process very much so, Right. Uh, let's get it in, let's get them out, let's keep it snappy, let's keep it fun, and let's keep it, you know, relevant and out the door. And really <laughs> fighting to get something, to mean something, um, and to not take ourselves too seriously in this profession and not to take our art too seriously and not to take anything too seriously, but also love on what we do, Um 
which was really, really um, important for me. And then also the other side of all this is how do you then translate all of the love you have for this art form into um, love in a personal manner and how to translate all of that sort of this great passion and love that you have for the art form into um, love and passion in the day-to-day. Strauss and Hofmannsthal create, in this version that we are performing, uh, a two-headed monster. You have this, they have the backstage musical, as it were, as the first half, and then the mashup as the second half. And the basic premise for a listener who may not know the story of Ariadne is that two groups of performers have been invited to give an evening's after-dinner entertainment at the home of a wealthy man, in the original The Richest Man in Vienna. And one is a group of Commedia dell'arte characters, call it a bunch of comedians, and the other is a small troupe of very serious opera singers, complete with composer and the composer's teacher. And they are to present an opera that the composer has labored mightily over, called Ariadne of Noxus, based on the legend of Ariadne, abandoned on Noxus by Theseus, and then rescued by Bacchus at the end. And the premise, of course, is that the dinner is running long and fireworks have to start at 10 o'clock. And so the major domo comes in and says, oh, by the way, you're going to perform your two works together. Chaos ensues, and so does the opera. And so you have this group of comedians, and you have this group of high artisans, as it were. How did you come up with the idea that the comedians are led by, as it were, a Marilyn Monroe kind of figure, and the opera is led by a Maria Callas kind of figure, and the uncanny connection that you discovered. So I started with the time period, actually, because I was trying to find a time period in American history that was on the brinks of revolution. Mm. And the late 1950s seemed suitable because it was just the that time before shit hit the fan. Yeah, before the yeah. Vietnam War and student unrest and all of that. The Feminism, end of the Eisenhower idol. Exactly. Right. And, and 1912 in Vienna, and then in 16, by the time you're at 16 in Vienna when the opera's premiered, the world is at war. Exactly. A very turbulent time. And we're about to hit that time, and a lot of dreams are either going to come crashing down or will finally be awakened and will be free, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And then I started there and thought, all right, so who are the women? Because Strauss wrote for great women parts, right? So who are the really essential women? And I grew up admiring, as many people did, Maria Callas and reading all about her personal life. And as much as we all loved um, listening to her recordings and listening to whatever video is available, what was also fascinating was her personal life. And I remember reading biography after biography as a teenager and loving all the, you know, the turbulent backstage tantrums and the love affair with Onassis and, and the heartbreak and, and the, the, all of this sort of like beautiful fascination that we have with this woman who lived as she performed. And, and then finding Marilyn Monroe, who is a fascinating character because here she is um, sort of perceived as the original dumb blonde of her time, um, sort of idolized for her body and her physique, 
but also fighting continuously to be taken seriously as an actress, going to the Stanislavski studio, studying method acting, studying um, how to be a serious actress, and yet having to perform in this art form because that's what she's known for. That's what she's done. And then reading more about her, then getting to the era in her life where she marries Arthur Miller. And and you think Arthur Miller and, and Marilyn Monroe, you wouldn't even invite them to the same dinner party, let alone think that they would get married. But it was a meeting of these two people, Arthur Miller being this intellectual Jewish playwright in New York, very much part of that group that was... Uh, he was a, a political writer. He was a social writer, you know, writing about um, communism, writing about um, socialism, um, and fighting in his own right to be recognized and um, and uh, having his work not be condemned because of its political writings. And, and then them both falling in love. She um, converts to Judaism for him. She sort of hopes that this new marriage will give her the the um, legitimacy, legitimacy as an actress. Legitimacy, yeah. and then funny enough, after she dies, um, he writes a play about the meeting, and it's basically him being haunted by the, her ghost, and wanting to get married a fourth time, and needing to say goodbye to that relationship and to figure out his guilt over her suicide. Um, and or alleged uh, suicide and um, and coming to terms with their relationship. So a fascinating relationship in and of itself. And so we have these now three people. So at that point, that's the aha moment. And from there, all of the pieces start falling into place. And one of the great payoffs when you go and see the opera as you have conceived it is there is a moment when the Zerbinetta character in the opera, who is the stand-in, as it were, for the Marilyn Monroe idea and looks uncannily like <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, uh, says uh, something that just goes straight to the heart of that nobody takes me seriously. Mm-hmm. Hoffman Schnall writes words for Zerbinetta that could have come out of the mouth of Marilyn Monroe. That is exactly the battle of everyone sees the mask, she says. Everyone falls in love with the mask. And I am a great actress. I play this role that you all want me to play. And I play it well because I'm a good actress. But who says my heart is in it? And that is exactly what Serbinetta is saying. So you have engaged on this particular occasion when you're with us now and on what is not certainly a top ten opera, but an opera that has existed for over 100 years. What is some of the joy of working on an opera that is brand new. Oh boy. Or is it simply terrifying? It is. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. We are in a a golden age of new opera. Really and truly. We are, um, the amount of requests that I'm getting these days for operas that have been written in the last 10 years or will be written in the next 10 years is uncanny. And it is a great joy, and it is terrifying, um, but it is also exhilarating because the terrifying part is that the piece could be awful. It could be terrible. The 
and and as a director, um, I come into the new process in different stages, mm -hmm. depending on the piece and depending on the company. And a lot of times, I can't make a bad opera great. I can make a good opera better. Um, I even if a piece is great, I well, I hope I won't destroy it, but. Um, but you know, you there is something to a tried and true opera that has six, that has had success over the years, and you've no, you know that the basic piece is good. Marriage of Figaro is a solid piece, and you can ruin it. Trust me. And there are many people who are um, who will let you know. But that's exactly the opposite of it. No one comes to new opera saying, "Oh, I grew up on this piece," or. You know, I saw this piece and so and so years ago with that and that singing and and I hold this piece in my heart and that almost is um, the death of opera when when we bring too much nostalgia and too many expectations into a performance. Um, it's not like putting on your favorite movie. It's meant to be new. It's meant to be live. Um, and so with a new opera, you come in and no one has any expectations. So they can come in and hate it. They can come in and love it. Some of them will survive 100 years from now, and some will survive 100 days from now and will be forgotten. But every new opera makes us think about traditional opera in a, in, in a new way. So it's all for the better. Do you have a wish list of pieces in the standard canon that you are desperate to get your hands on in short order, or is it all appealing? Uh, areas that you, things that you, titles that you've looked at, or productions you've seen that in other people's hands and say, "I want to do that." Yes, short I mean list? a short list. Um, Rosen Cavalier is high on that list. Strauss and Hofmannsthal again. The Rake's Progress is on that list. Um, Carmen is on that list. It's the first opera I ever wanted to direct. And it's a really hard piece to direct. Giovanni. And you know, it is funny how we as directors we're easy to fall in love. Part of the trait that you need as a director is to be able to fall in love with the piece. Um, so it's always, it feels to me like whenever anyone says, oh, what's your favorite piece? It's the next one I'm doing. And it's not because, you know, it is because we sort of have to be in that place. We have to fall in love with the piece to do it. Robert Spano, who has conducted a great deal of new music, once said to me that when I get a new piece of music to conduct, even if I don't like it personally, it's not my aesthetic, I have to will myself into falling in love with it so that I can transmit passionate energy to the players in the orchestra so that they will try and do justice to it for the composer. I don't particularly have to like it, mm -hmm. but I have to at least pretend for a while to love it. And I think, I don't think that's dishonest. Mm -hmm. I think it is one of the things that those of you who are in the translating part of the transmission of a created work into the eyes and ears of the audience have that responsibility to love it while you're doing it. 
And as you say, there are some pieces you can genuinely love because they are masterworks and they appeal to you. And there are some pieces that you have to will yourself into loving for a time and giving it your all, uh, which is also part of the mark of being a pro. And that you have to ask yourself sort of what is interesting for me in this piece. It won't be the same thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it'll be an interesting character that you want to explore. Sometimes it will be uh, the music. Sometimes it'll be uh, the, the text. And sometimes it'll be because it is a flawed piece and you want to figure it out. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean... If I can, can I solve the puzzle of X? Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing that's fascinating to me is when you do standard repertoire, you do it at different times in your career, hopefully. If no one taps you on the shoulder and kicks you out of the, out of the, uh, war, of the opera world, um, you will get to revisit pieces several times. So there is a solace in saying my, the way that I will look at Traviata now will be different in 20 years because I will evolve as a person. Um, my magic flute will not be the same in 10 years' time. And the really great pieces, will uh, you will evolve into them, out of them. Some pieces during certain times in your life speak to you more. Um, even though it's funny, I always think that the pieces that you're doing reflect where you are in your personal growth as well. You know how when you are in love, every song on the radio sounds like it's about people in love. And when you are going through heartache, every sound, every piece, every thing seems to be about that. That's how I think directing opera is a lot of time. You are asking yourself questions as a human being all the time. And those of us who chose this profession or the profession chose us, um, constantly asking ourselves questions about our own humanity or about our own environment and that will reflect in the piece so something that is on my mind will come up in whatever piece i do it almost doesn't matter you know what i mean because mm -hmm. i think that that will be uh, if i'm if i am fascinated by class structure and what that means um, it will come up again, again, and again. If I am uh, exploring the theme of of aging and what that what that means for you, that will come up in pieces, whatever timeline you're in. Um, and again, the repertoire is so rich that you can find the themes that you are searching for wherever you're looking. When you are looking in the theater on the opening night after you've spent weeks. Uh, getting it to that stage. Uh, what's it like watching your own work in the theater? Oh, it's the worst and the best. <laughs> it is. If I can't, it is the weirdest sensation. Um, it's a heartbreak in some regard because it's this true separation between you and the performance. Mm. You know, you're backstage. Everyone's getting ready. You're talking to everyone. Last notes, you know, sort of toy, getting toy, your toy, last toy, 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 yeah. don't embarrass me out there, whatever <laughs> it is that you need to say. And then they get to go on stage and you don't, for better or worse. Um, they get to go at it. 
They also face failure. They face a great triumph. And you sit back in the audience. And that's a little bit of a heartbreak. Um, especially when you're as involved as I am in the room, that I feel like we're all in this together. And then that's the point where you go, nope. You, they go to, through this door and you go through that door. The baby chicks leave the nest. Exactly. They're no longer yours. And you know, and sometimes it is um, delightful because you get to blend in with the audience. You get to authentically hear what works and what doesn't work. Especially um, in comedy. Especially in comedy. Um, and you can really see what it's like to sort of put yourself away from it for a moment and go, all right, what does it mean? Um, and it's funny. So, you know, the tradition of opera directors or the industry standard, as it were, is that you leave after opening night. Um, my work here is done. My work here is done. It's your show. Good luck and good, good night. And um, this time, because of my connection to Cincinnati and because so many family and friends here, I, I asked to stay and to be here for the performances. And I'm fascinated to see what that's going to feel like because I have no intention of giving you notes, have no intention of changing anything at this point. Um, there's no need to. It's their show. It's going to be different every night because it's live theater and because it's a wacky comedy. So who knows what's going to happen. Stuff happens. happens. <laughs> Stuff happens. And yet it's going to be fascinating for me as a director because you also never get to really see what works and what doesn't work. Over the course of time, over, over a run. And because, you know, you set something up like we were talking about, you war map the whole thing and you think, okay, it all works in my mind, and then you meet the singers, and then you see what works in the room, and then you go, all right, it all makes sense to us. And then you have to be ready to see what actually is going to resonate with an audience. And you never know. And it's not, you know, it's not, oh, well, it, I thought it was funny, so if you didn't, then, you too know, bad. too bad for you. But actually learning, I'm sort of putting myself in, challenging myself over the next run of the show to really listen and watch the audience to see what works and what doesn't work so that I can learn for the next time so that I can see oh see that would have worked if we had done this or this thing that I didn't think would work works beautifully or see you didn't have to change that that could have been the way that it was and it would have been great or you know, this happened because it was live theater and then it made the joke all that better. All those things, you know, the, in comedy, the proof is in the pudding. If you made the audience laugh, then it worked. And if you didn't, then it didn't work. Um, but there is a lot to be learned from it. We ask all of our guests the exact same questions at the end of our time together, and you always have the right to plead the fifth on okay. any of these questions. What do you usually have for breakfast? Coffee first. Uh, Amen. Coffee first. Uh, I'm a runner, so I have a lot of carbs in the morning. Bread, eggs, lots of veggies. How do you deal with stress? Oh, boy, I run. <laughs> if you sound like you've had many mentors. Do you have one in particular 
who uh, you sort of channel your inner whatever uh, when when you're thinking about how to deal with your career and your life? Oh boy, um, too many to mention, I guess. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, I've that's been very blessed to grow up with a lot of good people, a lot of good artists around. What are you reading right now? I just read David Sedaris's Calypso. I need a break sometime. Uh, is there a TV series or a podcast you enjoy? Oh, I love podcasts. Uh, True Crime is my favorite. On your telephone, is there an app that you find particularly useful? WhatsApp. That's the one that I get the million messages from the family from. You have a long connection with Cincinnati, um, but as someone who goes away and comes back and sees how the city changes, is there something on this visit that has been a discovery for you? Something new that you didn't know before? A restaurant you went to that you didn't, didn't oh couldn't remember that you'd been to or a new, a new experience in Cincinnati? The food here keeps getting better and better mm. every time I get here. And v unfortunately for my waistline, I have tried all of the restaurants. Run more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I'm sure you've had a lot of career advice from very well-meaning people. Um, is there one thing in particular that sticks out that's a little adage that you repeat to yourself, a little mantra you use from time to time? Be patient. It is probably the hardest thing for me, but I keep repeating it. A favorite musician outside of the world of classical music? Beyonce. That was easy. Should I have thought longer about that? No, not hard at all. Last but not least, uh, do you have an approach to convincing someone to try opera who hasn't tried opera before? Your elevator speech, as it were. Um, Besides, he, come to my show or I'll never speak to you again. Um, well, <laughs> here's a free ticket. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. Come and see it. Um, I think... Opera is for everyone, but you have to give it a couple tries. Uh, the thing I hear most from people, oh, I saw an opera when I was five and I didn't like it and I haven't seen it since. Um, do the research on what kind of opera you're going to go see. Hmm. I would never go see a horror movie. So why would I see um, a horror opera? Um, if you like comedy, go see a comedic opera. Yeah. If you like romantic, go see uh, Romeo and Juliet. Go see Romeo yeah. and Juliet. If you, um, if you like surrealist uh, um, art, go see Electra. You know, there's plenty of stuff. But don't just arbitrarily go see a show, and then peg all of operas to be one thing. Do your research. Figure out. Ask people who know. Ask people you trust. Uh, there's plenty for everyone. Truer words were never spoken. Thank you, Omer. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs> <laughs>